Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Coming up next, America's most prominent civil libertarian lawyer joins the show. It's Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Vincent Jason, Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. You know my colleague, Vince Colonnese. And today, this is really exciting. We have a really big treat. We have professor and lawyer uh, extraordinaire, probably the most prominent lawyer that any of us have known, and in, in, at least in my lifetime, that is uh, Mr. Alan Dershowitz. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing great. Thank you. It, it's great to have you here, uh, sir. I, uh, one of the things I want to point directly to is that uh, you're just out with a book called The Case for Vaccine Mandates. And that's the kind of thing I see my eyes pop open, my jaw drops, because I think, as I said in the intro here, uh, that you are America's, I would say, most prominent civil libertarian lawyer. So coming from that perspective, how do you arrive at a point where you say, yeah, there is a case for the government mandating medicines for its citizens? Well, no, there is no case for mandating medicines ever. For example, if the uh, scientists were to come up with a 100% cure for cancer or heart disease or diabetes, uh, they couldn't make you take it, even if there were no side effects. You have a right to determine your own health. But if we're talking about a contagious disease, a disease that affects not your health, but my health, my ability to travel, my ability to go into a store, my ability to go to a restaurant, then the government does have uh, power, but the power is limited. And in my book, The Case for Vaccine Mandates, I talked about uh, vaccine mandates as an absolute last resort, with exceptions. But if we got a situation where the only way of preventing the spread of the illness to other people, vulnerable people, older people, other people, was to uh, require uh, vaccination with exceptions for medical conditions, perhaps religion, I think the Supreme Court would uphold it as they did in 1905, uphold a smallpox vaccine. There are differences. And I don't think that, for example, President Biden's mandate will be upheld because that was done not legislatively, it was done through the executive. So in order for a mandate to be constitutional, A, it has to be done by the legislature, B, it has to be a last resort, C, it has to have exceptions, appropriate exceptions, and D, it has to follow the science. But if all of those are followed, I make the case for a vaccine mandate, including masking, yeah. social distancing, and in extreme cases, actually requiring- So that's. That's obviously very interesting. So what you're talking about is the people's representatives in the legislature would have to make that decision as prescribed, prescribed in the Constitution, rather than, say, Biden using uh, OSHA in order to impose on corporations who have more than 100 employees a mandate that all of their employees be vaccinated, uh, which, of course, at the moment, uh, all of the mandates, whether it's the federal contractor mandate, the OSHA mandate for private employers, uh, or the healthcare worker mandate through uh, Medicare and Medicaid, um, all of them are being upheld right now by federal judges who are saying that uh, that Biden exceeded his authority, either constitutionally or didn't follow the actual law when it came to establishing these regulations. Do you agree with those judges? 
Well, I think there is a real question about whether a Congress authorized the president through OSHA to deal with contagious diseases. We know that OSHA is really a safety statute, but it does concern health. So I think it will get to the Supreme Court eventually, and it will have to be decided. It's probably going to be a very, very closely divided decision. And uh, I don't know whether it will be upheld. I suspect it might not be upheld. And it would be far better for Congress to have hearings, to listen to the science, to listen to all sides, and then make a decision, a legislative decision. Remember, under our tripartite system of government, it's the legislature that makes the law. It's the executive that enforces the law, but they have no power to make the law. And under COVID, too many executives made too many laws. Mayors made laws, governors made laws. That's not the American system. The legislature should make the law. Now, during emergencies, you may have to have temporary executive orders, but uh, those executive orders should be temporary. Look, uh, uh, how many years ago we had the, the, yesterday was the anniversary we had a great emergency in this country, Pearl Harbor, and executive decisions had to be made. But then the next day, of course, Congress declared war, as they should do under the Constitution. It's up to Congress. So, uh, Alan, didn't, but isn't this vaccine mandate, the, the understanding is that it would be temporary? Like, this isn't necessarily, my understanding is that it's not going to be that they require vaccines for long periods of time. And, and also, how do you, what do you think about some of the local vaccine mandates that we have in schools, which seem to have lasted for, for generations? Sure, look, I remember growing up with polio. I didn't have it, but a friend of mine died from polio. We couldn't swim, we couldn't go to any, when, when, when Salk and Sabin invented the vaccines, we were all lining up to get it. Everybody wanted it as quickly as possible. And um, we've had you know, polio vaccines, flu vaccines, smallpox, uh, chickenpox, measles, you name it. Uh, for years, nobody's objected to it, but we live in a country now that is so divided politically. Everything is partisan. Right. Which side are you on? I have lost most of my friends on Martha's Vineyard because although I'm a liberal Democrat, who voted for Hillary Clinton and voted for Joe Biden, I defended President Trump on constitutional grounds in front of the Senate, lost all my friends on Martha's Vineyard, or at least the vast majority of them, because we're a divided country. You have to pick sides, Red Sox or Yankees. You can't go in between. Red, you know, Republicans, Democrats, red, blue. You've got to pick sides. And there's so little room for nuance, which is why I love a show like yours, which has nuance, allows you to get into discussions. And you don't have to just divide and, and divide over, over gender, over race, over politics, over partisan, you name it. Uh, division, division, division. I want to see our country more united. Is, I have to ask about the Martha's Vineyard thing. I'm glad you brought it up just because I was, I was wondering ahead of this conversation about this exchange that you apparently had with Larry David. Uh, yep. On Martha's Vineyard in August, it was reported that the two of you encountered each other at a grocery store. Apparently, you've been friends for a long time, sure. uh, and that he was very angry at you, and and I guess was was yelling at you in the grocery store. And at one point, you actually picked up your T-shirt and showed that you had another T-shirt on that said, "quote It's the Constitution, <laughs> stupid." Um, I guess one, like, why are you wearing that T-shirt? Are you preparing <laughs> for all arguments on Martha's Vineyard? Will be settled with the "It's the Constitution, stupid" T-shirt. And uh, have you talked to Larry David since then? 
Well, it's a great question. So what happened is I was having lunch with a radical lawyer friend of mine, a hard left lawyer, who still maintains a friendship with me because he's, he's tolerant. And his son had just gotten into Harvard Law School. And he had not gotten into Harvard Law School and resented it. So I put <laughs> a shirt on on top of the shirt I was wearing, which said, Harvard Law School, just kidding. And I wanted to give it to him as a gift, but he didn't want it. So I wore it on top of the <laughs> just happened that the shirt I was wearing underneath was the shirt my wife had uh, gotten for me, uh, which I wore on the vineyard all the time, which said, it's the Constitution, stupid. So I just happened to have the two shirts. I took one of them off and showed it to Larry. Look, Larry and I were friends. Um, and uh, he used to come to my house for dinner. He used to come to our house to work out in the gym. He asked me to try to get his daughter into college, which I helped her uh, do. I served as an informal consultant on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, he would call me all the time uh, and ask me questions. And then when I defended President Trump, uh, even though I voted against him, Larry just blew up and, and, and started screaming and yelling. I was worried. I thought he'd have a stroke. He was so angry. I mean, he could have hit me. I wouldn't have been surprised. He was so angry. All I wanted to do was have a conversation with him. He could disagree with me. I could disagree with him. But we could have a conversation. He said, no, we can't talk. Well, that, no. well, that kind of, go ahead, go ahead, Vince. My, no, my, just it's just I'm wondering like where something where that emotion comes from. Obviously, you're not Larry David, so you can't speak Im immediately to that. But you encounter it a lot. You say on Martha's Vineyard, yeah. people acting like this, like that's really the only people you would treat like that are like war criminals, like the kind of person who's irredeemably evil. Like you, they're just so beyond the pale, you can't even be seen in the same room with them. Well, that's and what, that's what think, it sounds like you're being treated as. That's what they think of me. They they think I'm Donald Trump. They think that, hey, let's start this way. They think Donald Trump is Hitler. They make that analogy all the time. They think Trump is Hitler. They think I'm Donald Trump. Therefore, I'm Hitler. Therefore, I'm a war criminal. Therefore, they won't uh, talk to me. People walk out of events when I'm there on Martha's Vineyard. Not only that, but I've been canceled by the Martha's Vineyard Library, which I used to speak at every year to the largest crowds, the Martha's Vineyard Community Center, the Martha's Vineyard Jewish Center, the Martha's Vineyard Book Fair have all canceled me because of my defense of the Constitution on behalf of Donald Trump. They really do treat me like a, a, a war criminal. I mean, there are people on the vineyard who are terrible, terrible people. There are people on the vineyard who are responsible for the uh, credit crisis, for um, what happened in 2007 and 2008, 10. There are people who've done terrible, terrible, terrible things. They're all okay. But defending President Trump in front of the Senate? Oh my God, how can we ever talk to him again? And so one of them wrote me a letter, a lawyer, uh, who, I, who had begged me to get him cases, to work with him on cases. He said, I can no longer be in your society. I didn't even know what that means, but it meant he didn't want to ever have to deal with me again. And these are people I've known for 30 years. These are people whose kids I represented when they got in trouble in school, in high school, in college. These are kids who I got up at three in the morning and bailed them out when they were uh, picked up for drunken driving or drugs. Uh, these are people I've done enormous amount of favors for over the years, never, ever taking a penny from them. And then suddenly I'm a war criminal. That's well, You know, that that's really unfortunate. Uh, I have to stand up for Larry David just on principle because he's a University of Maryland guy. 
Uh, he <laughs> couldn't get into Harvard, but he's a Maryland guy like me, so I'll, I'll always stand up for Larry David. Hey, I'm virtually a University of Maryland guy. I lived in Hyattsville for two years. I went to all the basketball games in College Park. I, you know, I loved Lefty Drysell. I remember all the great ball players. Uh, of course, the great ball player from Maryland who was drafted by the Celtics and, and died. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of Maryland. Uh, and uh, Larry and I have talked about that. You know, he came from Brooklyn. Uh, I come from Brooklyn. We come from just a few blocks, a few miles away from each other. I went to Brooklyn College. He went to Maryland. We had a lot in common. We have common friends uh, over the years. But boy, he just he just freaked out. So you can defend him all you want. And I'll continue <laughs> to defend University of Maryland. So, you know, <laughs> well, that, that's great. And I, I also lived in Hyattsville for a long time. And and uh, there's a new documentary about Len Bias that I'm in as well, uh, talking about some of the uh, the laws that were were passed after his death, uh, yeah. mainly the the Anti Drug Abuse Act. Now, let me ask you a question that kind of goes along with what Vince was saying earlier, uh, and and I think it kind of relates. What do you think about the legalization of drugs? Because it, it just kind of occurred to me that what you were saying is that in in terms of being in terms of a, a civil libertarian approach to the constitution, it stands to reason that what I put in my body that doesn't affect others is, is my right. That's my constitutional right. So therefore, what do you think about those who make that argument about drug use, that it should be legalized? I support it generally. I think there are two kinds of drugs. If you take drugs that hurt only you and you're an adult and you make the decision hey you want to be john belushi be john belushi you want to be uh somebody who has an overdose that's your decision um it's like suicide i would not criminalize suicide but there are some drugs some drugs a very small number of drugs that actually could have an impact on other people that could make you more violent more prone to violence, that kind of thing. And I think those drugs pose a somewhat different problem. But for the most part today, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, opiates, I would not make taking any of them illegal. Now, I might want to regulate opiates through the Federal Drug Administration to make sure that people aren't addicted and that kind of thing. But I think taking the drug itself um, should be constitutionally uh, protected. It's interesting how though conservatives and liberals switch on this, you know, conservatives say my body, my choice, but not when it comes to drugs. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, liberals take a different view sometimes as well. So I think we have to be consistent. Also, but I do think it's worth measuring how we describe harm, right? So like you were kind of describing that, you know, some drugs that you take may lead to you being physically violent towards others. Yeah. But the reality is like drugs, like drug consumption and drug addiction, particularly the opioids, heroines, those types of things, they have very destructive consequences for your family. If you're oh, if you're the breadwinner of a family and you become addicted to opioids, you're going to devastate that family. You're going to harm that community yeah. that you. How, how is in. that any different from from, from alcohol, for example? Yeah, or it's or not. No, I I think that's reasonable. It's not all that different. I'm I'm saying that that addictive drugs, um, and things that rob you of your liberty to make you know, good rational decisions that lead to thriving families and communities no, are worth with, taking a close look at. I agree with that, but I also agree that uh, the state should not have the power because once it gets that power, there's no limiting principle. 
uh, you know, soft drinks, uh, right. food that causes you to get uh, diabetes or heart condition, uh, riding a motorcycle too fast. Um, all of those things could devastate the community and hurt the community if you die or if you have hospital bills that have to be paid for by Medicare or Medicaid. So I wouldn't give the government the power necessarily to make you not hurt yourself just because it has some peripheral impact on society in general. Well, I mean, I know we're talking about kind of at the individual level, like should we criminalize the consumption of these drugs? That's a good, that's a perfectly good debate. But obviously we should confront the distribution of these drugs. Oh, I mean, you've got, you've got uh, right now we're on track. I believe we've already had well over 100,000 Americans die of drug overdoses in the past calendar year in the United States. That's a huge number and probably underappreciated, I think, broadly in the press. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fentanyl that's cr crossing our border in a pretty unrestricted fashion. Uh, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of courage to confront it. And I, I feel like we should be doing that aggressively. Do you? Look, I, I, I agree. Look, I just had a recent experience with that. I just had my gallbladder removed surgically. Imagine Alan Dershowitz with no goal, but that's what you get. <laughs> I have no goal, no gallbladder. And as a result of the surgery, I had a lot of pain. And so they gave me OxyContin. I threw it in the toilet. No, yeah. I'm not having OxyContin. I'll take the pain, but I'm yeah. not going to addict myself. I don't know what the consequences will be. I don't know what control I would have over it. In the toilet it went. I could have yeah. probably sold it on the street for a fortune, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Ruining the toilet. And yeah. I was, I was shocked that the doctors gave me OxyContin. I didn't even ask for it, but they, they gave it to me. And um, I don't need it. I can deal with pain. I hope I don't need it, but I think people have to make their own decisions about how much pain they can tolerate mm -hmm. and whether they want to take the risk of addiction. I don't want to take the risk of addiction. Well, well one of the things I'll tell you uh, just really quickly, and, and I think we had a brief conversation with, with Tucker Carlson about this when we interviewed him, but uh, you know, my, my father is a medical doctor and tore his patella off his leg, basically, <laughs> you know, had a really bad leg injury mm. and took only Tylenol. He refused to take any opiates for the very same reasons. Right. No, uh, I've so been, I've been taking Tylenol and now I'm off Tylenol. Um, yeah. You know, I, I know that's not addictive, but it could hurt your kidneys. So I took a few Tylenol to get me through the first couple of days. And uh, then I relied on my loving wife to just, uh, you know, rub me and pat me and do the right <laughs> things and uh, hell of a lot better than any other drug. Let me, uh, I, want, I want to talk more about something that we, we were just chatting about moments ago, the way that sort of politics has paralyzed our ability to have sober thoughts about, um, and specifically the law. I mean, you, this is, your career has been in the law. You've received a lot of blowback for defending all sorts of people that people right. hate or despise. And I you, despise and hate them too. You and, think you despise them? I have to <laughs> deal with them. I had to deal with Leona Helmsley. Let me tell you a story about Leona Helmsley. Go ahead. Too many I would stories. love to hear that. Most of them are privileged, but this one happened in public. I'm sitting and having a cup of coffee, uh, tea actually, with her uh, at her hotel, dealing with the legal case. And um, she asked me to come to the hotel. So I had the tea. And the waiter, a young Latino kid, probably 21, 22 years old, um, comes and serves me the, the tea. And it has a little water in the saucer. I didn't even notice it. She noticed it. She took the saucer, the cup and the tea. She threw it on the porcelain floor, on the floor, and it broke into dozens of pieces. And then she said to this young man, 
get on your knees and beg me for my for your job back. And uh -huh. I said, Leona, I will never be seen with you in public again. I will never talk to you again, except as it relates to your legal case. And of course, I argued the legal case, but uh, I hated her guts. But <laughs> oh. I argued for her. I was her lawyer. Uh, I can't tell you too many stories about other clients, but you know, I've liked some clients. I've had neutral feelings to some clients, but I've absolutely hated some clients. So, you know, just because other people hate them doesn't mean I don't. Yes. Doctors yeah. hate their patients. Yes, people are entitled. Parishioners, priests hate, you know, but we have jobs to do. And people are right. entitled to legal counsel, no matter how morally reprehensible yeah. they might be. Absolutely. How do you feel? I obviously I you've got you've had some big clients under your belt, Leona Helmsley, not the only one. What about Jeffrey Epstein? I know you wrote a book on that subject. Um, what were your thoughts on him? Obviously, Gillian Maxwell's in the midst of a trial right sure. now as well uh, about all of these sex crimes. Uh, what did you think of Jeffrey Epstein as a person? Well, I liked him, uh, as, as did the president of Harvard, as did the presidents of other universities. He was a charming guy. None of us knew, at least I can tell, tell you, I didn't know what he was doing in terms of uh, women. He kept his private life completely secret. Yes, he would sometimes appear with a 25 or 26 year old. I remember one of them who was like 28 and he was probably 48. And she was a student at uh, the Harvard Business School and her father was the president of a bank in Germany. And uh, so we, we were totally taken in, totally fooled. And then of course I, I represented him. And then to get money, one of the women who was with Jeffrey Epstein accused me of having sex with her on seven occasions in places I was never at. Uh, at times, I couldn't have been there, including in front of my own house in Cambridge. And she claimed she came into my house in Cambridge, where my wife had an office, where my daughter was a young child, just totally made up stories. Um, and uh, fortunately, we were able to get her emails. She tried to suppress them, she tried to bury them, but we got her emails, which admitted she never heard of me and didn't know me and had to be told that I was Von Bulow's lawyer and I would be a good person to put in, my, in her book. So, you know, she's been exposed as a total fraud. Uh, the government isn't using her as a lawyer, as a witness, because they know, obviously, that they can't uh, trust her credibility. But my reputation has been diminished by uh, representing Epstein and then being accused by one of the people in Epstein's circle of having uh, sex with a woman I never even met. So that's that's life as a criminal defense lawyer. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask a question and, and kind of shift gears just a little I'm, bit. I'm sorry, Jason, can I stay on this issue for just a moment? Then, okay, if you don't ahead. mind. I, just because you were talking about Martha's Vineyard, you, you know, you run in very elite circles. So just as a as a basic descriptor. Uh, and knowing Jeffrey Epstein and the allegations about Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell is that they were running uh, essentially a child sex ring, that they were bringing in all of these underage girls, sexually abusing them. And then uh, that other wealthy, powerful, in some cases, famous people uh, were also engaging in these sexual activities. Um, I, I imagine you won't be able to say for certain that anybody was. But do you suspect that they were? How how far reaching do you think this question. sex ring may have been? There's only one person, this woman, Virginia Gouffray, who claims she was lent out to other people. She said she was lent out to Senator George Mitchell, Ambassador Bill Richardson, Prime Minister Ehud Barak, Leslie Wexner, the owner of the Limited, um, and a bunch of other people. Prince Andrew. But Prince Andrew, but she has no credibility whatsoever. She's a woman. Oh, by the way, her own lawyer said he did an 11-year investigation, 
and no prominent people were involved. This is our own lawyer, Brad Edwards, on CBS says, 11 year investigation, no prominent people were involved. Then he also said that Leslie Wexner wasn't involved, yet she swore under oath that she had sex with Leslie Wexner between five and 10 times. So her own lawyers have called her a perjurer. Her own lawyer, David Boyce, on a tape recorded conversation with me said, it's impossible that she could have met you in the places she said she did. She's wrong, simply wrong. Government knows that, and so the government didn't call Virginia Gouffre, but all the television networks use her as a kind of poster child for what happened and believe her, and yet there's no reason to believe her. There's another woman as well named Sarah Ransom who claims she was a victim, and, uh, and in her case, she wrote letters, emails to the New York Post to a woman named Maureen Callahan in which she said, she swore, that she had sex tapes of Hillary Clinton, she had sex tapes of Donald Trump, she had sex tapes of Richard Branson, she had tapes of Bill Clinton, and then later she admitted she made the whole thing up. She admitted to the New Yorker that she made up the whole story about sex tapes, and yet two days ago, she was on CBS Morning News telling her story with no reference to the fact that she admitted that she lied in blaming Hillary Clinton and others, nobody has covered the story about these liars. Uh, these are serial liars who are making up stories for money. They've made three and a half million dollars in one case, five million dollars in another case for telling these lies and nobody has investigated them. So there are two stories here. There is the story of Epstein victimizing people and there's the story of some of these alleged victims now victimizing people and trying to get a lot of money. These are now 30 and 40 year old adult women who are doing this. So we're not talking about children. We're talking about adult women who are making up stories to collect large amounts of money, admitting that they made up the story. And yet the media doesn't in any way disclose the fact that they admitted that they were serial liars. More with Professor Alan Dershowitz in just a moment. But first, Vincent Jason Save the Nations brought to you by Goldco. Now, do you think that some of that, and, and after the, after you answer this question, I, I definitely want to shift gears a little bit, but do you think that some of that uh, could be the, the hyper-partisan uh, environment in our media, that right-wing media wants to hear you know, negative things about Hillary Clinton, that there could be a sex tape, and so they you know, uh, go run with that, and then left-wing media wants to hear that Donald Trump is being urinated on by prostitutes. So they right. run with that story. So do you think that that's probably, uh, you know, something that has to do with the hyper-partisan, uh, you know, media well, environment that we're so, in right now? I have helped the hyper-partisanship a little bit because both sides hate me and <laughs> me. Um, hey, me and uh, you both. Right. The right hates me because I don't think that Joe Biden should be impeached. The left hates me because I didn't think that, uh, that uh, President Trump should be impeached. Uh, so, um, uh, well, we'll see. I'm, I'm going to continue to fight back. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I, I think both sides hate me because, you know, the left hates me because I'm willing to, to work with, you know, Fox News or go on Fox News and go right. on the Daily Caller. And then the right, you know, just hates me because, you know, I, I say what I believe and I have left wing views. But well, you argue in your book, Supreme Injustice, that some of the Supreme Court justices were sufficiently partisan and should have recused themselves from ruling on the 2000 election. Now, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, 
cheered on the MAGA rally before the January 6th insurrection, campaigned for Trump, and Thomas himself took his law clerks to the White House to meet the former president. Do you think Clarence Thomas should recuse himself from any cases that involve the former president in the future? Well, the Supreme Court has very strange rules about recusal. They have rules that bind all the lower court judges, court of appeals judges, federal district court judges, but they don't have any rules that bind them. They are law unto themselves. They're above the law. And so only the justice decides whether to recuse uh, himself. Look, I think both uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas should have recused themselves. Justice Ginsburg took some very strong political views and made very strong political statements. So did Justice O'Connor during the 2000 uh, election. So justices are people. I know them all. Um, you know, some of them are my colleagues, uh, my friends. Uh, they're people. They're human beings. They have passions, strong passions. And hopefully they can control those passions and render objective decisions. But if they can't, they should recuse themselves. I want to ask you more about the Supreme Court. We just saw this past week uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization go to the United States Supreme Court. It's going to take a hard look at whether or not uh, Casey mm -hmm. v. Planned Parenthood and, of course, Roe v. Wade, if the fundamentals there in those cases should be overturned. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her life had suggested that she didn't like the way that Roe v. Wade was decided, that the, that the legal reasoning uh, in the case wasn't strong. Um, do you think Roe v. Wade should be overturned? And, and what do you think of sort of the, the reasoning that Justice Blackmun and others uh, used to arrive at that decision? Well, I was a critic of Roe versus Wade when it was first rendered. I didn't think there was a sufficient justification for taking the issue from the public and giving it to the courts. And I wrote that and I was criticized for it, but I don't think it should be overruled. I think when you have a 50 year decision that gives people rights, gives people fundamental rights, you don't take them away just because of a shift of personnel in the Supreme Court. So, at, but at that some cases, of course, at some point have to read that, reach that threshold. So if it was a bad decision over time, Right. I mean, there have been cases that have been overturned that have been looked back at, you know, uh, most famously Plessy versus Ferguson. Yeah, but very, rarely, very rarely have cases been overturned when they granted rights. Usually they've been overturned when they take rights away. Obviously, gay rights uh -huh. that have been taken away and then granted. This would be a very rare case in which the right of a woman to choose abortion for 50 years has been taken away. And by the way, just because the logic of the decision was wrong yeah. doesn't mean the result was necessary. But can I can I make a, the point that sure. any pro-life listener is probably thinking right now? Sure. The rights, the rights of the child have been deprived. The rights to life have been deprived by a decision like this. But if this. you take that argument to its logical conclusion, to its logical conclusion, it means that the Constitution prohibits abortion. That means that the states could not allow abortion, that California and New York would not allow abortion. Because mm -hmm. if, the, if there is a fetus and the fetus has rights, obviously the rights of the fetus have to trump the, any other rights of, of the woman. So right. the argument goes much, much too far. And even Justice Kavanaugh said the Supreme Court should be neutral on abortion. But there are those. And I think, I think Justice Barrett has written in the past about the right to life. And the right to life would preclude the, the states from actually allowing a woman to have abortion. We would become one of the only countries yeah. uh, in the modern age that 
that absolutely prohibited abortion, even if the legislature permitted it. So, maybe so. Maybe so. But one one last point. I know Jason wants to jump in sure. here. That the Roe v. Wade case concluded that the government can't um, say that there's a blanket right to abortion throughout the existence of right. a pregnancy, right? So, in other words, like Roe v. Wade drew this arbitrary line of where the government can begin regulating the issue of right. abortion during a pregnancy. So even Roe v. Wade as a case decided that, no, this shouldn't be a, a boundless right. There should be restrictions on this uh, because the life of that child does play a meaningful role. Yeah, there's no question about that. And we have very inconsistent positions uh, on that. For example, a person who believes in the right to choose and doesn't believe that the fetus is a person would certainly permit prosecution of somebody who deliberately kicked a pregnant woman and ended her pregnancy against her will, um, both because he affected the right of the woman and because there is a child and the child in the fetus, the fetus was, was killed. And so, you know, it's a very difficult area. You say arbitrary line, any line would be arbitrary. There are those who believe the minute, the minute the zygote, I can't talk about the science, but the minute the conception occurs, right. human life. And there are others who would say, no, it's viability. And there are others who would say, no, even at the very end, you can terminate a pregnancy. The question is who makes that decision, not whether the decision should be made. It has to be made. Is the decision the decision of the woman, the decision of the doctor, the decision of the legislature, or the decision of the courts? Mm -hmm. And the courts haven't made a strong enough case for why it should be relegated to the courts rather than the legislature. But I do think that 50 years of precedent should not be overruled just because there's a change of personnel. That leads to court packing. We just saw it the other day that the, the commission uh, has now going to come up with its recommendations. It won't recommend court packing, uh, won't recommend anything, but some of the people on the commission recommend court packing. If that were to happen, it would mean a woman's right to choice would be yes today, no tomorrow, and uncertain the day after. It would always depend on the personnel of the court, and the personnel of the court would expand every time there's mm. a new majority. So mm. if they pack the court now and add four justices, then when the Republicans take over, they'll add six justices. Ultimately, we'll have a Supreme Court the size of the Senate, and it will really eliminate the role of the judiciary as a check and balance on the two popular branches of government. And I think that would be a bad thing. So my understanding is from what you're saying, you don't agree uh, with not only so-called court packing or expanding the amount of justices, you also don't agree with term limits? I do agree with term limits, uh, but I think they may have to be constitutionally uh, changed. Um, I think a term limit of between 15 and 20 years is a good idea. I don't believe in age limits. I don't believe a person should have to leave the court at a given age, say 70, because that would just encourage presidents to appoint younger and younger yeah. and younger people until ultimately they appoint fetuses to the <laughs> court. Um, so, uh, and some of the greatest justices, uh, Justice Holmes, Justice Brandeis, uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg, uh, got on the court when they were 60. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to keep uh, age vary. Uh, 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 you want to have some young people and some older people. But if we had age limitations of 70, you'd have everybody appointed in their 30s or 40s. But I think term limitations make a lot of sense, but they may require a constitutional amendment. Okay, so sticking to the, the Constitution here, 
Um, you have said that you prefer that we repeal the Second Amendment, calling it an absurd thing in an interview and saying that we should rewrite our laws to create a presumption against gun ownership rather than for it. Can you explain kind of your thinking on, on the Second Amendment? Okay, let me be very clear. If I were at the Constitutional Convention and I were in Congress when they passed the Bill of Rights, I would not have voted for the Second Amendment. I don't think the right to bear arms belongs in a constitution. Uh, no other country has it in its constitution. I think Switzerland may have a modified right, but we're really the only country that has the right to bear arms as equivalent to the right of free speech, the right of equality. And I think that's wrong. So I would not have voted for it. I would, however, not vote to amend the constitution. I wouldn't touch the Bill of Rights now because I'm afraid if, if I amend the Second Amendment, you'll want to amend the First Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. So, you know, it's a compromise. So I would restrict the Second Amendment. I think that when the Constitution talks about a reasonably well-regulated militia, a well-regulated militia, it basically suggests that gun ownership can be well-regulated. And I would like to give the states the power and Congress the power to regulate gun ownership. Nobody should be allowed to own a tank or a nuclear weapon. And I don't think that people should have the right to personally own uh, automatic uh, weapons uh, that are used for the military. Uh, even the weapon that was used by Kyle Rittenhouse is not a weapon that some 17 year old kid should be able to have and use. So um, I'm in favor of, of, of a well-regulated right to own guns, uh, even though I wouldn't have voted for it in the first place. But those, but many of those regulations exist, and they're not even really opposed by the gun lobby. Like, so automatic weapons are highly regulated. Very rare do you find somebody who actually owns an automatic weapon of any capacity. Uh, you know, things things like tanks, certainly nuclear missiles, that kind of stuff. Um, but but there's in the political discussion around this. You know, regardless of your feelings of the Second Amendment, there's a lot of um, misdirection on this case. I mean, the reality on, on this issue, because the reality is the majority of people who die. From guns, they die as a result of handguns uh, and handgun crime specifically or suicide. Whereas like the guns that receive all the attention, semi-automatic rifles, like the one that Kyle Rittenhouse had in his hand, are responsible for fewer deaths on any given year than fists are and knives. So I mean, this is this is one of those debates where like I feel like there's a lot of distortion of the data. Uh, and in order to regulate guns that are not actually misused uh, all that often. Uh, and additionally, as a constitutional matter, uh, there's a, there's an argument, and and now I'm now I'm talking I'm arguing here with Alan Dershowitz, so you know, just as a <laughs> layman here, I'll try. Please do, yeah. Uh, I'll try. But um, the one of the constitutional arguments we often see, one of the arguments that gun rights supporters, Second Amendment supporters, make, is that the Second Amendment, as an amendment, is um, sort of the protection for the, all the rest of the amendments. It's the kind of the underlying protection for all of those other rights because. If your government turns tyrannical and begins infringing on all of those other deeply valuable rights, that Second Amendment really declares that you do have the right to take up arms against that tyrannical um, imposition on your rights. Well, but it doesn't uh, because the Constitution doesn't uh, uh, protect people from um, uh, treason or taking up arms. You can still be uh, prosecuted and sentenced to death for taking up arms. Uh, all it gives you is the right to have the gun, not to use it against the government. Uh, if, if the government were to turn tyrannical, obviously the remedy would be extra legal, not legal. 
mm. uh, as it was when Britain turned tyrannical. Remember, the Declaration of Independence is a lawless document. It talks about God, nature. It doesn't talk about the law. Yes. Uh, the Constitution is a lawful document, but the Constitution doesn't give you the right of revolution. Uh, Jefferson talked about uh, the need for revolution every so often. Fortunately, we haven't had that need. We had it only once, basically, right. during the Civil during the Civil War. But I agree with you. I think we need more nuance in the discussion of the Second Amendment. I'm happy to learn. I don't use guns. I've shot 22s when I was in, um, in camp when I was 18 years old. I don't think I've shot a gun. Uh, I know I haven't shot a gun since. So I'm not a gun guy. You know, when you grow up in Brooklyn, you're not a gun guy. Uh, you, you fear guns because they're used by the, by the criminals. Uh, but I do know that semi-automatic weapons can be turned into automatic weapons uh, with some technical uh, skills. And I do think that some restrictions are proper. Like, for example, in the case recently that we've had um, uh, involving that kid who killed people in, in Michigan, I think this should be a law. And I think a lot of Second Amendment people think there should be a law that if you own a gun and you're in a home with young people, you have to have a safe for the gun. You have to have a place, not just some draw somewhere where the gun could be easily found by a three-year-old or a five-year-old, and in this case, a 15-year-old who went out and killed people. So there are restrictions that I think make a lot of sense. Some of them are supported by the NRA. Some are opposed. Um, I generally think the NRA goes much too far uh, in not uh, having a regulation and checks and other things, we can have a debate about that. Yep. I'm not going to stop being your friend if you and I have a different view uh -huh. on gun control. Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement. I'm I'm not a gun guy either. I th I think I know what you mean when you say that. Even though you know I I do like guns, but I'm not a gun guy. You know, I know some guys who are really gun guys, and I'm not one of them. But I also think that, you know, there certainly should be limitations on, you know, the kind of guns you have. And, you know, I know that Vince kind of made it seem absurd that someone would want to tank or someone would have, you know, modifications to their weapons. But that's that's a reality because the, the Second Amendment says the right to bear arms. And, you know, that's up to interpretation. What kind of arms are you sure, talking uh, about? Of course. And, and the other thing is, if you're going to... Uh, say that you're going to stand up to the government. First of all, I thought it was interesting that you said when the government turns tyrannical. And as an African-American, I can argue that the government has been tyrannical yes. you know, after the Civil War. Yes. Towards African-Americans. This is oh, one of the they fundamental. they never took up arms. And, and, and actually, they did. Black, black people took up arms against yeah. the government's and, tyranny. And white people. On, on some... So you're arms. talking about the Civil War? Or are you talking about certain... Uh, occasions, you know, in certain places that are isolated. Harriet Tubman is like one of the most famous gun owners of all time. I just of think course she was, I, but that was that was prior to the Civil War. I, that was, you know, well, and, and a lot of times her gun, the when she used her gun, yeah, it was in order if somebody got cold feet that you know when she was taking them mm -hmm. to freedom, mm -hmm. that she used her gun more on them than she did on on opponents. Of course. Harriet Tubman also worked with, she is the first woman to ever lead a military exercise, like a, a military raid. So she worked with the United States military, not against it, you know? Um, 
I do think that if I were uh, a black slave, an enslaved person in 1832, I would maintain the right to overthrow the government by force and violence and take whatever action was necessary to unslave me, just as if I were a Jew in Nazi Germany in 1942. Uh, you know, uh, mm. There are times when you have a natural, you can say God-given right or human right to, uh, to fight against oppression. Slavery and genocide are among the things that you have the right to fight against. The only place where I would correct you is I think the government has been repressive after the Civil War. If you look at the post-Civil right. War period, it was just like before the Civil War period in many parts of the South. They arrested African-American men, put them in prison, and then had them work as slaves, basically. Right. That's, that's, that was what I said. That was my yeah. argument, was yeah, yeah, after yeah. the Civil War, <laughs> yeah. that, that it was tyrannical and African-Americans didn't take up arms, you well, know, uh, on a large scale. South in 19, I think it was, it was my, between my second and third year in law school, and then after my third year in law school, what I, what I saw down there, I, I just couldn't believe, you know, I'd grow up in the North. And then I married a woman from Charleston, South Carolina. And she told me that, you know, her father had seen a lynching in St. Matthews uh, of South Carolina. And uh, that her father, who was a small pharmacist, couldn't have lunch with his best friend, who was an African-American doctor uh, in his own restaurant at the uh, counter because that was Ill illegal. Look, what, 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 what our country went through in terms of race is, is just unbelievable and unjustifiable. But having said that, I've written an article now and it's in a book that I'm coming out with in which I say, the United States is no longer a systemically racist country. We have okay, so we're going to have to disagree there. But, but we're not systemically racist in the sense that the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, the media, corporations, the academy has been trying very hard to overcome our history of racism. We can disagree about where we are, and I'm not sure we would disagree because I think we have a lot to go. But I think to call it systemically racist is to confuse what it was when I was growing up. Let me tell you when I was growing up, what it was a little bit like, just give you 30 seconds. Sure. I think I told you, I was first in my class in law school, I was editor in chief of the Yale Law Journal. I couldn't even get an interview with a Wall Street firm uh, because my name was Dershowitz and I was Jewish. There was systemic anti-Semitism. There was systemic sexism. There was systemic homophobia. There was systemic racism, most of all. It was completely systemic, it was from the top down, it involved every institution of government, every institution of the media, the academy, every institution that was important was systemically racist. I don't think you can say that about America today. We are trying hard, we have a lot to go, but we should recognize, I wrote this article on when, 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 um, the, new, uh, public, when the new national holiday, uh, Juneteenth was, was described, and saying, you know, it's hard to call a nation systemically racist when it recognizes the anniversary of the end of, of, of slavery. Not alone, but I think that we have to recognize where we've, where we've come from in order to make sure we know where we have to get to. Right. Well, I, I would say uh, I would agree with you that much has changed. Uh, like I told you, actually, before we went on air, my, my family, my parents, well, at least my, my father, uh, grew up in Germany. And the reason he did, you know, my grandfather went to Brooklyn College too, yep. uh, as well, another Brooklyn guy. And uh, 
the reason he did was because in his field, uh, he could not get a job in the United States. So he moved to post-World War II Germany <laughs> as a black person because it was better for him and for his career than he could do in the United States because uh, of Jim Crow. And I'm, you know, and I'm uh, from the Baltimore area and my, and my grandfather used to hate Baltimore because he said the only place a black person could get a sit down meal was in the train station. So yeah. I, I and, and when you mentioned lynching, three of my ancestors were lynched, you know, after the Civil War. So, you know, I, I can I, I definitely think that we are in a different place today than we were then. I think if we didn't acknowledge that, then we wouldn't be acknowledging the work of so many African-Americans who work to make our country better. Um, however, the reason I will say that, that systemic racism still exists um, is because if you look, for example, even, even the argument that I, I thought was really interesting, the right uh, got really upset because uh, I think it was uh, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg brought up the fact that the structures, systemic racism means that it's built into our structures. You don't need personal animus in order to fuel it. So he brought, he brought up the fact that there are structures that were built uh, in New York by Robert Moses. Uh, you know, you being a New York guy, you're, you're familiar with this. So there were structures that were built in order to keep black people and uh, Puerto Ricans from getting to the beach. So they built the bridges lower so that public buses couldn't get through. It was and, amazing. And that's no, a fact. I, agree. I agree with that. I agree and, with that. It was very, look, look, I'll never forgive Robert Moses because he basically took the Brooklyn Dodgers out of Brooklyn. That was the worst <laughs> day of, of my life. I went to high school four blocks away from Evans Field and I met Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese and Gil Hodges and Carl Erskine who's turning 95. Uh, this week, and I remember the 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers, but, um, uh, you know, Robert Moses took them out of, of Brooklyn because he wouldn't allow uh, a stadium uh, to, to a real a good stadium to be built because he felt that the demographics were such that it would encourage more minority people to come to games. And if he moved it to Los Angeles, it would be racism was per, was pervasive and accepted as, as, as late as the 50s. Um, I was a Supreme Court law clerk in 1964, and we were hoping to dismantle it all then. That was the goal, to dismantle it. But it, you know, obviously didn't work completely, but it worked at least in part with voting rights acts, which are being set back now, and uh, other changes. So look, it's a work in progress, but it's a work. Yeah, no, now, I, I'm, we're in agreement that I think our society is, uh, you know, recognizing the issue, if it's like a, a medical condition, if you don't recognize and acknowledge right. that you have an issue, you can't fix it. Right. So that's right. why people bring up systemic racism Can. and the fact that it's built into our systems and institutions rather than uh, something that requires for somebody to dislike somebody else or to mm -hmm. have hatred in their heart. Now, having said that, what, I want to move I, on to another question. Jason, um, just, just one I second. Only, I only have a few more minutes. So let's, a uh, couple more questions. Then, unfortunately, I have another obligation. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then I'll let you jump right to your next question then, Jason. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I, um, so something you, you wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle, I believe, uh, you advocated for torture under 
uh, what you believe to be exigent circumstances. Um, so I, I wanted to get your view on that. And, and does, doesn't that open the door to war crimes? And don't you fear that those tactics could be used against American citizens? So please read the article. Um, I am unalterably categorically opposed to torture under all circumstances, but I believe it would occur if we ever had exigent circumstances. So the argument I make is this, I'm against torture. If we could abolish it completely, I would do it. We can't. Every president would allow torture in extreme situations. If you captured a guy who said there was a bomb and it's planted and it's in New York and it's gonna go off in 48 hours, and there's not enough time to clear the city and you're gonna have a million casualties, every single president of the United States, every one of them from Washington to Biden, including Obama and including Clinton, would at least close their eyes and authorize torture to stop that from happening. Nobody wants to be the president who could have stopped 10 million people from dying. Nobody wants to be their president. So torture will occur. That's not a moral statement. That's an empirical statement. If I'm right that torture would occur, I want it to be regulated. I want to make sure that the government gets a warrant for it, that they explain it to a judge, that they justify it, that they limit it. So I am against torture, but in favor of torture warrants. The same thing is true of the death penalty. I'm against the death penalty. I wish it were abolished, but it's not abolished. So I want to make sure we have due process before we execute people. That's why I've defended so many people on death row pro bono, even though I know that they may very well be, be executed. So my view is I'm against torture, but I'm even more against torture being done under the table the way it was done, I think, during the Bush administration. Hmm. Interesting. What an interesting position. Uh, go ahead, Jason. I go ahead. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have twenty different questions I, I want to get through. So, I know. I, you know, um, so you've defended uh, anti BDS laws uh, by stating, "quote So long as these anti BDS statutes do not prohibit advocacy of such boycotts, right. but instead focus." Uh, on the commercial activities themselves, namely economic boycotts, right. there are no serious freedom of speech concerns. And uh, you know, there's more to that, but I won't go into it. Using that legal and constitutional logic, uh, could this, for example, could the city of Montgomery have legally canceled any contract with a company that supported the Montgomery bus boycott? Uh, maybe for, let's say, driving black citizens to work or school? No, uh, here's my argument. Look, uh, I can make a statement. I can go on the public statement and say, nobody should ever serve a black person. Uh, mm -hmm. Black people are, 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 they don't deserve to be served. Nobody should serve them. I, that, that would be my constitutional right. But I have no constitutional right not to serve a black person. Mm -hmm. I have to serve them. Even if I think it's terrible, even if I advocate not serving them, I have to serve them. The same thing I would argue is true of, of, of Jews who uh, uh, and the Jewish state. Uh, we have statutes against national origin discrimination. So you can call for a boycott of Israel. You can say Israel is an apartheid genocidal state, all of which are false. You can say all that, but you can't refuse to have economic business with Israel the way Ben and Jerry and Unilever uh, have done. Remember, Unilever has does business with Cuba with China, with Belarus, with Iran, 
They even have a plant in Belarus and they, 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 but they've just picked and chose one country, the nation state of the Jewish people and said, we won't deal with them. I think that could be made illegal uh, just the way it's illegal to discriminate against gay people, black people, women, Jews, uh, and anybody else. So no, I don't, I don't think it would apply to a political uh, boycott. It applies only for me to a religious or racial boycott. By the way, I am subject to BDS. Uh, I'm not an Israeli, but the BDS people refuse to engage with me. They wouldn't debate with me because I'm a Jew who supports Israel. If you're a Muslim who supports Israel, they'll deal with you. But if you're a Jew who supports Israel, they won't. That's religious discrimination. That's why I'm against the actions of BDS rather than the advocacy of BDS. Okay, so, um, and, and again, I, I'm, you're, you're the constitutional lawyer here. So, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna throw this out. Um, sure. Isn't it, didn't the, you know, the Supreme Court decide uh, with the, the case with the guy who was making cakes that right. you can decide who you serve? Um, no, they, they sent it back. They remanded it. Uh, they didn't make a decision on, on the merits. Um, and that would be one individual deciding uh, who, 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 they, who they serve on, 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 and they claimed it on religious grounds. They claimed that there was a religious prohibition. Uh, and there are some things, for example, uh, a priest does not have to perform a gay marriage. A rabbi does not have to perform a marriage between a Jew and a non-Jew uh, because there are religious rights that under the First Amendment may trump equality rights. But if it's not a religious right, if it's just a, a political right, uh, no. And I, I'm not sure how the Supreme Court will eventually decide that cake case. Um, I think, by the way, it's a phony argument to say that religion prohibits uh, selling a cake to a gay couple. You know, there's nothing basically in the uh, New Testament uh, against uh, gay marriage. There is something against divorce. And can you imagine any baker refusing to um, sell a cake to uh, a couple uh, that one of their party was divorced? They would never do that. So they pick and choose um, based on, I believe, bigotry, uh, which parts of the Christian faith they, or any other faith they believe in. And when you start picking and choosing that way, I think they do the same thing with vaccines. I think there are people who claim that there's a religious prohibition against vaccination. Show it to me. I, I'm pretty, pretty expert on the Bible. I've taught courses on the Bible and, and justice. I can't see any religious prohibition against vaccination. Um, the Bible talks about saving lives and spreading, preventing the spread of disease. So I think religion is often used as a cover for bigotry. It was certainly used as a cover of bigotry during slavery. We know that there was the so-called Christian case for slavery, which many ministers in the South made, saying that Abraham's family in the Bible were had slaves, therefore slaves are permitted under the, the Bible. I mean, there were fake arguments, but uh, they were being made. So be careful when you accept religious arguments. Okay, just one more question, because okay. I... I just want to follow up with one sure. thing, and that is, uh, so you would be, so that, for example, for the, for the Daily Caller audience here, uh, if China, if the NBA decided they didn't want to do business with China, or, you know, some other private business didn't want to do business with China or Iran because of the things that they're doing in their country or in their region, you would think that that could, that's illegal, that should be made illegal. 
No, I think this. I think we're talking there about very much political political decisions, not based on any way on 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 religion. And if it's based on a single standard, um, and um, you know the idea that the tennis association won't allow people to go and play tennis, it's to protest a political decision. But they don't say we're going to do business with the with the Muslims of China, but we're not gonna do business with uh, people from a different religion. Whereas BDS distinguishes based on religion, which is what I think is its main flaw and its main fallacy. And it singles out only the nation state of the Jewish people. But you know, you make a good point and you have to make sure that your decision is a principled one. I've always applied what I call the shoe on the other foot test to make sure that whatever principles I espouse fit comfortably if the if the perceptions are are shifted, man, I I tell you what, Alan Dershowitz, we're so appreciative of your time. I uh, I there's both Jason and I have a million more things we could talk about. So hopefully we get a chance to do it someday. Well, let's uh, do it sometime. Let's do it again when I have a little bit more time. Okay. Yeah, Alan, absolutely. Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Alan. All right, God bless. Sure.